0: Milan, Milan the, on, the horse, on horseback.
1: Rodeo.
0: <laughs> what Girl. sort of saddle is that? Is that a western saddle? Yes, one sitting out there, there. Okay. Still the same one. And Milan in boxing gloves. Gosh, you won a lot of cups. Oh, I
1: fought for New Zealand. Did you? Yep.
0: I didn't know that. When did you fight for New Zealand?
1: 1968.
0: We're looking at a picture here of you with your white boxing gloves on and your shorts. You're looking pretty trim, taut and terrific and pretty cool boots. And a table full of cups, what what were they all for?
1: Oh, different uh, cups. Um, yeah, i come runner-up in the New Zealand Championships. Seniors, I think. I won the junior champs. Um,
0: what grade would you have, been, or uh, you have feather, been? Featherweight then. In
1: those days, the top boxers were Toro George, Manuel Santos, uh, Tuna Scanlon, Earl Nicorder. Names like that, and and uh, in my time, I fought three boxers uh, that turned professional. I recall uh, Stephen Ayers, he later went on to fight in Australia. Um, Manuel Eddie Manuela, Eddie Manuela, the same. He went on to fight in Australia and around the Pacific, and uh, Joey Santos. Joey Santos was uh, world rated in in his later parts of his life, and uh, but he later got uh, severely uh, concussed or knocked out for many weeks. Uh, I think he fought Joe Teter for the British Empire title, and uh, that ended Joey's career and nearly his life. Um, God bless him, I often think about him. Uh, but, um, yeah, I fought Joey three times. How would you go? <laughs> I lost three times. But um, just the way, nature of boxing, you know, you fight at your own level in your schools and uh, it was never good enough for him, that's for sure. But um, just came about over many years to end up fighting him three times, analyzing three times.
0: And surviving. Pardon? <laughs> and surviving.
1: And surviving. Yeah. I can tell you that boxing um, really teaches you a lot of um, character building, I think.
2: Milan Ruka is a kaitiaki, He is a river ranger for the Environment River Patrol. Five years ago, overwhelmed at the polluted state of the Wairua River, he decided to find out how bad the problem was. Cattle on unfenced farming land had polluted the riverbed. Nearby farmers had discharged waste into the river. The tuna or eels had all but gone. And what was once a childhood haven for Millen was then in such a dire state that it reduced him to tears. What perhaps was worse was the lack of progress from regional or district councils in the Northland to remedy the situation. When most 60-year-olds would normally be winding down in their career or thinking ahead to semi-retirement, Millen invested heavily in equipment to help clean up Northland's polluted rivers and bring the plight to the attention of council. Underneath his quiet demeanour, Millen is a man of action and not just talk – as you'll hear, when you he sat down for a cordial with Lois Williams, in this series Te Reo o Teraki, Voices of the North. Where were you born? Where'd you grow up,
0: Mom?
1: Born in Auckland, Pamia. Mm. Lucky there, where we were, had a better four-mile playground of uh, from the Tarmaki history, a reserve right through to uh, Mount Wellington. Yeah, it was a playground, creek there, eels, tui, pigeons, everything. Beautiful, beautiful place to, to, to grow up in.
0: Sounds like paradise for a free young boy.
1: It was, yeah. Mm.
0: But that's not where your people came from, is it?
1: No. No, my dad, uh, my whanau come from Tahiki. Well, our marae is Mahiri, mahuri, and our hapū is uh, Ngāti
0: So but when did the move to Auckland happen?
1: My dad uh, settled in Auckland after the war, after coming up, back up home here with Mum. He met Mum in uh, Wellington uh, after being discharged from the army, after being prisoner of war for four years. He came up north with Mum in 1946 and found that there was no opportunities up here, despite a lot of land that we used to have. Uh, his mother was still here, mother and father still uh, still alive up here at Poriti, and he went down to Auckland and set up business down there, hairdressing. There's one good thing he was good at, was hairdressing. (laughs) He learnt that as a prisoner of war.
0: As a prisoner of war? Yeah. Tell me about that.
1: Of course, everybody knows the story of Crete, but uh, Dad, being in the 28th Māori Battalion, his brother was there, younger brother John was there, the other brother, Robert, he hadn't yet signed up. But um, Dad was captured on Crete when the Germans uh, invaded and uh, he ran around on the mountains there for quite a few weeks and then tried to escape off the island in a, in a boat that him and some other guys, had, had the soldiers had uh, managed to get hold of and they got machine gunned uh, on their way to Turkey just off the coast of Crete. So he was captured and uh, ended up in, in Austria, the prisoner of war camp. Chose to go into a working camp. Done a lot of logging for for most of those years there, yeah, and met a lot of people,
0: and picked up his hairdressing skills.
1: That's right, and uh, <laughs> how
0: yeah. did that happen? He just was one of the chosen oh. ones who could cut. Or what?
1: <laughs> yeah. I don't know, but he, um, I didn't think he was a very good hairdresser, particularly when he when he cut my hair. But um, yeah, one of the skills he picked up, one of the many skills I'd say. He learned to, to speak German fluently also, so. I'm already coming back speaking German.
0: <laughs> How did that yeah. go down?
1: I can remember uh, working with Dad at different times, uh, painting with him, or you know, just moving around with, with Dad and uh, you know, people of any foreign descent, you know, Czechs, uh, Yugoslav, and and German. And I can remember he could engage and talk fluently, just as good as anybody.
0: Been much time up here in the north.
1: Oh, we were up here all the time, every month, just about uh, one one way or another. We'd come up. Um, Dad uh, was also a contract painter and and uh, and hairdresser. He had, um, but um, uh, for quite some parts of the year, we'd he'd be uh, at a hawker's license, and he would come up. North here, we'd get load the truck and trailer up full of wine, <laughs> flagons of wine, and take that down for Sly Grog, but we'd also take down watercress and uh, tuna, eels. Yeah, and we'd spend a, <laughs> from about Wednesday night till, till Sunday night on average. That would be my job, for looking, working with Dad. With regards to school, I just missed out on school in those times.
0: Did he have a stall, or how was he selling the stuff, all the goodies from the north?
1: <laughs> well, you you may remember 6 o'clock closing. Um, everybody was just moved outside, or you moved to another house or garage down the road. And, uh, yeah, we would uh, just drive around all the time, actually. I can remember going to the Victoria Cricket Club, Pakaranga Pigeon Mountain Cricket Club. All of those clubs, you know, would, would, they'd just turn into, you know, drinking places. <laughs> but... Remember that uh, in, just in Pamu alone, uh, there's 3,000 soldiers settled there 28th Māori Battalion and all of the Parkour battalions. They were all one, all one, all good mates. Um, but when six o'clock closed, you know, at six o'clock closing, they just moved to other venues. So I got to to move around amongst those old fellows, you know, very regularly, every day, you know.
0: So you developed a, what, a, a strong entrepreneurial streak.
1: Me, myself. <laughs> yeah, sort of, yeah, I, I guess I'd have to say. I, I guess, uh, you know, the school sets I learned off, off Dad, you know, was to be self-sufficient.
2: He kai ke akuringa translates to there is food at the end of my hands. A river or the ocean is a pātaka kai, a food source. Millen remembers how vital the river was to his family.
1: Oh, in the early 50s, 60s, um, you know, Although many families had left, you know, they were home, you know, really regularly, you know, every month, uh, you know, families from all over the place, and any occasion of unveiling or such, tangi, um, everybody be home. Um, But the work wasn't there as much, but, you know, that was still fresh home to many that had left, you know, in the younger years, such as my father, that era.
0: Was Māori spoken in those days? I mean, you didn't learn Māori as a child, but did your father speak it?
1: Yet Dad was a native speaker. It was his first language.
0: And, and and did he ever talk about being beaten at school for speaking it, or any, anything about that?
1: Well, um, he got expelled at fourteen from Portagey School, uh, but that was being late, continually late milking the cows, uh, hand milking a herd of cows. And um, but yeah, no, it wasn't wasn't. I, I, I do know in particular that that wasn't a great part of his you know happy time of his life being being maori just because um they were so poor and um uh in regards to their their you know, no no you know the thing was to to not allow them to speak that's that's common particularly around that era of of poverty
0: Did he did he ever speak about that
1: um Dad's life was pretty harsh, uh, being brought up. Um, they, you know, I can remember one of their stories, you know, you know to have a feed for the day, you know, when they were out scrub cutting. As young fellas, old Bob was, he was the fastest. You know, the, the runner on the family, and he could run down a weka, you know, with a tea tree stick, and that was their Kentucky Fried for the day. <laughs> have a fire and cook it up. Um, but, yeah, life pretty hard. Um, at that time we had just a, a, a few acres living on but really it was like hapu land you know, um, but uh, the ruka Whānau, our our own f- uh, family, my father's grandmother, she had 460 acres um, but that was taken taken during the, the survey land survey grabs of the late 1880s and the early 1900s.
0: Survey grabs?
1: Yeah, well... Um, it's all part of our claims. There's 21,000 acres. There belongs to the hapū, our hapū of Te Ureiroi, te, te Parafau, uh, Te uh, 21,000 acres uh, of land uh, was surveyed uh, in 1885, and including our tea Spring. And then subsequently, after 1885, uh, particularly up to around about 1915, uh, uh, the lands are carved up in the, in, in the process of survey when settlers really had first right to that, to that land. If a settler came over the hill from Whangarei uh, with a surveyor and they would say, oh, I like that bit of land, well then the surveyor would, would find out through Māori and through the Māori assessor uh, who owned that land or who said that they had uh, you know, uh, ownership over it and then it would be determined that um, perhaps, say, the Rookers would have 460 acres, if that was surveyed, uh, then um, it would be cut up into, I can't quite recall exactly, but sort of 25, 30-acre blocks, and then you had to pay for your own survey. The, the Māori family or well, the Māori landowners would have to pay for their own survey.
0: That someone else had requested.
1: That, correct, that's right, yes, this, this is all... Quite quite common here in in, in New Zealand and in the Northland in, the, in that era.
0: So a compulsory survey ordered by somebody else that you had to pay for.
1: That's correct. And of course, in that in that era, um, my grandmother, my great grandmother, her uh, husband, Rukatikotikotere, uh, he had passed on, so she was a sole provider for for her family, and. Um, of course, those days are all barter, you know exchange eh, this for that, tunnel for this, watercress for that. and um, uh, there's no such thing as a, you know having a pound note in your pocket, really. And so subsequently, um, what they, what would happen would you'd succeed your land to the surveyor who in turn gave it to the the you know the prospective settler, farmer, and that was how it was done.
0: You'd give up some land to pay for the survey fees in exchange for that?
1: That's correct, yes. And then sometimes was a greater, you know, greater part of your land.
0: So by the time it came down to you coming back for these holidays and events, your family was down to just a few acres out there. That's right. Yeah. Do you remember at that stage catching eels? Do you remember swimming in the rivers? Tell me about that time of your life.
1: Well, yeah, that was a lot of fun. We'd go from Pamua to Cleveland, go eeling, uh, go, Dad would always hunt out his best, his, his mates, you know, particularly X-28, and, you know, from whatever rohi they came from, and then we would go there. And we learnt a lot of different methods of catching eels. And of course we uh, always back up home here, yeah. where we knew our own turf, our own backyard. Oh one I can remember that um uh to catch Tuna during the day, we would um out at Clevedon in particular, the autiny farno, we would put the punga in, the eel net, you know, the solid, you know, wire cage one, into the small but deep streams, get uh, cabbage tree, jam it all down the sides. So Tuna couldn't get past one way or the other. They had to enter into the um into the funnel. But the funnel would face upriver and be non-baited rather than downstream, you know? And then we would go just say two hundred meters or so, uh upstream, use long tea tree poles and really uh or slap the water and poke in the banks and create as much uh sediment as you could in those days. Um, uh, not very uh, ecological, is it? But um, you progress, progress down towards the hinaki, the punga, and uh, pull it out, and she'll be just slapping with the eels, you know, full up in the daytime.
0: So you're scaring them off the bottom and out of the sides there, and they head into the and that's trap. That's right, and the, and the sediment
1: too. The, the dust. It just tended to head away from you know, where the tea tree poles were, and the sediment, and go downstream. Yeah.
0: Into your trap.
1: Into the trap. Pull it out. <laughs> there you go. <laughs>
0: were well, they big eels in those days?
1: Big, yes, yes, yes. Big grey and black. Um, I don't know what species they were, which is an interesting thing, yeah. because uh, I've late I've learnt with Niwa, you know, all the details of um, uh, the, the different species, uh, in particular uh, long fin and short fin, and uh, I was aware of it, you know, that, that there is a difference, but not so to me, an eel was an eel, you know. I broke my hand in a rodeo when I was building and had a house underway, my own house, in town here. Lucky I just got it closed in and then I broke my hand at a rodeo and um, so as I couldn't bang nails them for about two and a half months I recall, but I, with the last few dollars, we're, we're, I had two children, two kids. I uh, bought two or three extra heenakis, patched up my canoe. <laughs> My cousin had shot a hole in it a few months earlier
0: That's int- that sounds like an interesting story yeah, no, it it
1: is. <laughs> and um we're dealing, so I'd paddle upstream with a broken hand and uh and lift you know set my my nets, go up in the morning, pick them up, and uh then drift down you know be with the full load of eels and get them into town and sell them
2: and yeah. that kept you going till you yeah, had right.
1: was better than building. <laughs>
2: School wasn't really in the cards for Millen. It was usual in the 1950s for children who grew up in rural areas to leave school at an early age and help their parents out on the farm. In his teenage years, Millen would go on to represent New Zealand in boxing.
1: I left school at 14. I had that many detentions just as we were having a school break. Uh, With all of my time off from school prior, uh, giving Dad a hand painting, I was pretty much a tradesman painter by the time I left school. And so I worked with there just for a few months and that didn't work out, and it were, painting wasn't for me, and uh, I joined the Merchant Navy.
0: Okay, and what did that involve?
1: Oh, great life, uh, I think seven years, um, I think I did achieve it, one part of it, uh, so Merchant Navy is, is cargo ships, we go to uh, Australia, I think I might have went there about a Twenty times, fifteen times at least, uh, up to Fiji, Samoa, and Tonga on the Matua and the Tofer ships, the island trailers, and uh, probably done a year each there, which would be more than twenty trips, I think. And all up and down the coast, uh, coal carrying coal, we had a Grey Mouth and Westport. It was a great life, but oh, <laughs> uh, in those days, you know, I think we're come out of the era not too far. I think the saying used to be. Um, when ships were made of wood and men were made of steel. (laughs) There was a saying in those days from the older fellows, so I actually sailed with, privileged to sail with a lot of old fellows that come off, uh, actually came off sailing ships, believe it or not. Well, the steel sailing ships, the last of the era.
0: So when you came back and left the Navy, what did you do?
1: Um, Bluffed my way around building, because in between ships, some 13-odd ships I was on, you know you'd have be on a ship be away in Australia away for three or four months, and then you come home and the best way to do was to to leave that ship often and so that you could get some home life go back and see my 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 lady you know? after a year ashore um, after finishing the merchant Navy, um I bluffed my way i bought an apron and uh dirtied it up and bluffed my way on the construction side I can recall but it didn't last too long but I was able to 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 get a job later on and and be a carpenter.
0: So you never actually qualified as a carpenter?
1: No, no. Subsequently, went on to being uh, two years later. I recall um, back in Faingarei. Then we're back up here. I built a house in town. Um, I built the same house I built with the company just previously. So I thought I could should be able to do that one. (laughs) <laughs> and, uh, but I worked with a team on that house and yeah. so I was, um, built the first pole house here in Whangane, uh in Panga Grove yeah, came out alright but while I was building it, people would say oh, uh, Mr Rooker, can you come down and have a look at my job down here and up there and and I never looked back I, I eventually, um, yeah went building, <laughs> put a sign on my truck the old man always said to me Dad always said, you can be whatever you want to be or as long as you look like, what you're going to be so the first thing I did was get a sign on my truck and said, MT Rooker Builder, and everybody just thought it was. <laughs> never looked back.
0: And
2: no complaints about your houses?
1: I can honestly say I never had a quality complaint.
2: And the pole house still stands to this day. Millen spent time overseas. It was in Australia that he became a qualified builder. He returned home to Northland. Perhaps unexpectedly, he found his next job.
0: At what point did you become interested in doing something about the rivers? Because you're known as the river patrol man, aren't you? How did that come about?
1: Yeah, been on rivers all of my life. Um, You know, any river that I could... You may recall the old tin canoes everybody used to make. (laughs) Uh, You know, made a few of those. Battled a lot of rivers around around Auckland and up north here. But, uh, yeah, got into canoeing always... um, by way of duck shooting um, with my my dad and my, my uncles. Um, so we covered a lot of rivers all over the country, and I just never, ever stopped and uh, got to know the w- Wairua like the back of my hand and a car here, rivers and uh, many other northern rivers around near where we live.
0: The Wairua is a river that's very dear to your heart. It's part of your lohe, isn't it? Part of where you grew up.
1: That's right. Our homestead was on the side of the Wairua with uh, some... 15 of my dad's brothers and sisters, uh, some 13 of them, I think, were born on the side of the Wairua River, so, so that's our, our rohi awa, our, the Wairua. And we, I can remember how clear it was, um, how, how, how good it was for healing watercress. Um, yeah, I knew that river intimately, you know, as a young fella, and covered almost its full distance. And um, and then many years later though, I'm talking coming right forward now to 2010, I recall. Um, I went out to the homestead with my uncle, Uncle Henry. He's the last surviving uncle we have in our family. And um, we both stood beside the river and just couldn't believe how bad it was. When and... Uh,
0: when you say so bad.
1: It was um, stagnant. Um, Red in colour, brown, and this was on a fine day, you know, when you when there wasn't sediment running, you know, it was just totally discoloured, red and and green and putty, you know. You you could smell it, you know. It's just, you know, it's so um, so full of uh, agricultural runoff. Um, But what the unusual part about it wasn't uh, it wasn't raining, you know, so. Uh, you know when you rain when it rains, it gets you get heavy sediment, you get um, all the runoff from the farms but um, but yeah we, we we were both really taken back really because we you know we sort of stood there looking at where you know uncle used to bathe and swim every day and and uh, it just really made us we were just so conscious it really impacted on us on that particular day, so I just decided i uh, well, uh, I've got to find out, you know, what's causing this. You know, you know. I just knew it would be to me. It was obvious. It was 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 farming, but I didn't uh, really. I wasn't prepared, you know, for what I saw. So I thought, knowing the river system, I'd better start right up the top on the Wire two River and the, which runs for from State Highway One runs about four, runs about. Five kilometres down into the to the to the junction of the Wider, and the other river is the Fakahata. Runs about five kilometres down to the junction of the Wider, and where they confluence, the Wider River starts. And from that point there, it's probably about 30 kilometres down to our homestead. So I paddled um, a greater part of that in one day, uh, and I just was uh, really. Um, <clears throat> really impacted on, on just how bad it was.
0: I remember you telling me once that you sat on the banks of the river and wept.
1: Yeah, yes, it's, that's right. Uh, that was on, on that particular day, the first day uh, up in the river, up in the top, uh, coming down the Whakapara, um stopped to have a um, some lunch, uh, but what I'd seen in that four or five kilometres just, uh, it, I just couldn't believe how farmers could treat our rivers. Um, there was cow crap, urine, um, uh, mud everywhere, just from 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 the river's edge right to the, you know, the full width of the paddocks, all the way down, just over many, many kilometres. It was just a, a foul stench all the way down. When I stopped to have lunch, um, I heard a cow's out of curiosity, walked over, came up to me on the other side of the bank looking at me, you know, starting to peel an orange, and then uh, I realised just how um, dirty, my, you know, my body was, and my hands, my my walker, um, my canoe, you know, with, when paddling, and I just didn't feel clean, you know, to um, eat my kai, you know, and here, yeah, I, I started the cry on that day, yeah, just, just Actually, I cried because of the enormity of it all, you know, knowing that what I'd seen and, and it was going to be the same on, on, you know, down the rest of the river, and it was, subsequently it was, um, that, you know, it was such an enormous thing to, to, you know, how could you turn all of this around, knowing I'd been down that very swamp, that same part of that river, when I was about 13 years old with my father. So I had a good talk to Uncle Henry, he then would have been, Uncle would have been about 80 years old, uh, very fit, hard working fellow, even at that age, and we embarked on um, uh, motorboating, I procured a, a, a suitable boat, river boat, brought it down from America, I bought all of the gear that we needed, um, invested about 120,000, just uh, as people would normally do. You know, like builders and plumbers, and you know, you just got to get your boat and all that. I chose mine, you know, to be a river boat rather than going out catching snapper and all of that. Purpose truck, you know, truck that would do the job. All the winching gear—it's <laughs> very hard to get in and out of the rivers. And there we set off to um, to do many, many kilometres of the rivers and repeatedly uh, to capture, you know, just how you know the state it was in.
0: You started photographing it, didn't you? Um, and started writing
1: reports, yes. Yes, and the uh, all the big learning curve. Uh, fortunately, I uh, learned computer skills, you know, and, and assessment skills. And I was qualified in assessment for builders, and I was able to transfer those skills to the river schools, river reporting. So, that, but still, it took a lot of evolving, you know, to to adapt and learn. Then
0: what sort of impact did these reports have initially? Do you remember?
1: Oh, uh, a lot of confusion to NRC and WDC. Uh, that's our Northern Regional Council and our Whanganoe District Council. I had learnt early in the piece, a uh, big learning curve there, how to store photos, get them on the internet, um, because you can only load two or three photos in a normal email, I needed a system, and I was really blessed to have someone come forward to, to give me a hand with that. But um, I use a system, Google Photos and Google Mapping. So if I put uh, 400 photos online. Uh, every photo has its own map, individual map, so you can na- uh, you, you can um, show the exact location of wherever this um, you know detrimental effects are taking place, and uh, you don't have to name and shame the farmer, which is one of the one of the um, uh, important aspects of the work, of, of of my work and Articles. Was not to shame these these, these working people, honest, you know, farmers. We uh, wanted to ensure that you know the work was compassionate in, in that respect.
0: How well is it working? What impact do you feel you've had?
1: Um, awareness is the biggest thing, I think. Um, but on on the last count, um, I, I think it's 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 not an easy one to calculate, but you know as to how a report influences to gain fencing or you know get rid of the cattle, and particularly they gain fencing. But it was around about but certainly the reports have uh, um, been responsible for approximately two hundred kilometres of fencing. that wouldn't be there if it wasn't reported on. There's probably be, uh, 100 kilometres uh, that's in the pipeline. Um, and, you know, by commitments such as WDC, so they will f- fence off the entire um, uh, the Hikarungi Swamp, the main part of the river, and that's that's progressively taking place. They don't actually have to do it themselves, but they have to... They, they control the leases, so they instruct the farmers that you uh, you either fence off or remove your cattle, you mm-hmm. know, and so a lot of those farmers succeeded their leases, gave their leases up, but new ones that have come on and said, oh, we'll, we'll, we'll fence it, you know, or at least run a hot wire. So, so yeah, um, we've particularly seen in, in our rohiawa, that's from the, the um, Whangarei Falls up to Pura Rapids, which is about 15 kilometres, um, that's around about uh, 95, 90% fenced now from almost zero fencing, and... Uh, probably the other 5% for the most times, uh, you'll see a hot wire there, so... Yeah, it's worked. It's, it's, um...
0: That must be pretty, uh, pretty satisfying, Willem. Well...
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, I'm not the only one, you know, that has a concern. There's a lot of hapu that are particularly around here that, you know, I've worked in in tandem with. That's Nā Kaitiaki no Māori, you know. Uh, So it's not just me, you know, but, um... But I guess my methods of doing it is totally, is, is different, um, but they put a lot of pressure on too to the councils to to clean up our rivers. But but what I've found though is there's massive resistance, uh, really, you know, from from the powers that be um, by not. Oh, should we talk about Northern Regional Council? Still don't have any policy for beef cattle. You know? It's only um, uh, dairy cattle that should be fenced. Uh, what that have to be fenced rather, but now that date has been moved uh, through to 2017. Uh, John Key has nominated that date when all dairy must be fenced. But then you've got all these other issues of uh, who 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 assesses what has to be fenced. You know who d- determines what is an, a, 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 a um,
0: significant waterway,
1: significant waterway or a, a, an accord stream they call it clean stream, accord stream. Mm. Um, I say uh, you know every little stream has to be fenced off. In that respect, um, because they are the very veins of what makes a creek you know these little punna streams and springs they are what makes makes up a creek that feeds into the river you know mm. so um yeah, so the dairy industry you know needs to be needs to uh, not not be allowed to self self assess itself you know it needs independent assessment and that's that's not even on the drawing board at the moment and mm. In the beef cattle, um, uh, there's no no uh, no policy around them at all. But um, the councils, both Northern Regional Council and Faringay District Council, have the Resource Management Act uh, to use. But they are both really hesitant, and in actual fact, the Northern Regional Council state many times uh, on T on television and in news articles, countering you know my my reports by saying that we don't have any policy. <laughs> uh, but they do have the RMA, detrimental effects, they can always use that, as many others do.
2: But you said they choose not to?
1: They choose not to, yeah. mm.
2: Last year, Milan Ruka was a finalist at the New Zealand River Awards, hosted by the Morgan Foundation. The purpose of the awards is to encourage councils and the community to improve the health of their rivers. And even though Millen's job may not be the most glamorous, he's had quite a few hobbies over the last few years.
0: One of the other loves of your life has been rodeo, or radio. <laughs> Tell rodeo. Tell me about rodeo,
1: <laughs> good old rodeo. Uh, I'm a cowboy from way back. Uh, I remember my late, late great mate uh, John Riley. He introduced me to rodeos. Oh, we met up as schoolboys at a rodeo. I think we were about 14. And so my, my I always wanted to be a cowboy f- even before that. and. The, managed to get on a horse and lasted just a few seconds uh, in the early days of the church brothers too and and that actually was a rodeo at Richmond Park and and, and Auckland and uh, but I went on to ride radios for about some eight years I think uh, after that never
0: any, any broken bones
1: yeah it broke a few and yeah it got got beat up a few times and yeah finally really got smashed up where I had to give it up but um, um, yeah, had a lot of fun though, and uh, yeah, a lot more respect for horses.
0: <laughs> You've done a few treks uh, here and overseas.
1: Yeah, just like my kidneys, I love horse riding and ridden many parts, you know, of this country, uh, down Fakatani and places like that. I remember we pulled up down there one time on our, on our camper truck, and uh, my wife and had Shirley and two kids, and we were just down there sort of mooching around, camping all around the place and um, some Maori family came down on their horses and said, we had a corridor on the side of the river where we were camped and they said, oh, you want to come for a ride, you know? I had my saddle they had everything with me and I said, uh, oh, yeah. So they picked me up in the morning and I was two days away. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't very really popular when I came back but we rode the whole of the uh, Waimana Valley across the mountain range into Whakatane uh, Valley right up to uh, Tafana, I think they called it. And then back down. <laughs> that wasn't really popular when I got there.
0: Frosty reception from the campsite, was it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: but they got out of it. <laughs> but yeah, no horses. are, Yeah, a lot of them. Recently, uh, tried to do a trip in America. You know, bucket list trip on horses. Um, yeah.
0: <laughs> how how did that go? Where did you go?
1: Oh, well, uh, put a lot of planning into it, uh, but you know. Yeah, things don't always go to plan, do they? No. But I, my plan was to uh, fly in with all of my gear, 100% of what I needed, all bar my, my kai. Uh, so I flew mm-hmm. in with my old saddle I've had since seventy four, uh, uh, my western saddle and rodeo saddle, and um, all of my gear, uh, everything, you know, um, picking string line, uh, hobbles for my horse, all of that sort of things, sort of things that... Uh, cowboys use in the States. And my, my trip was to ride from uh, El Paso, West Texas, across the border through Arizona and, and to Tombstone. <coughs> Home of Wyatt hurt <laughs> A few things happened. Uh, had I lost my wallet, one part of it, over there. Took four days to find that, but I found it. Um, uh, how did you it? lose
0: that? And how, how on did you find it?
1: Well I met with, up with my nephew in Denver and uh, we'd done a lot of traveling there and uh, came back from from a day trip and uh, my wallet was lost on that day you wouldn't believe it but four four days later my niece she found it on the underneath the mat that had gone right forward and from, oh, the, horse. from the rear seat no sorry oh, in, in, the the, in their vehicle oh, yeah, yeah, in the vehicle
0: right. that yeah. was pretty lucky. Yeah. Mm-hmm.